0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. It is great to see you guys here today. Go ahead and grab a seat, and we are open your Bibles to Genesis 42. Um, we're going to cover chapters 42 through 44 today. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've not had a chance to meet you, please come find me after the service. I would love to talk to you. Have a seat, Mom, please. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Fellowship's over. Uh, As always, we encourage you to come early, stay late, uh, and meet some folks. Uh, What we do at our church is we go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we are going through Genesis, and we're in chapter 42, going all the way through 44 in this sermon, and we're actually going to finish Genesis before we move. We didn't think that was going to be the case, but we've had some delays, and so uh, we're going to be finishing up the book of Genesis and then going into Psalms for the Christmas season as we move into our new building down the street. Um, If you did your homework, thank you. Uh, We assigned homework of reading Genesis 42, 43, and 44. And so if you didn't read that, Uh, The door's back there. You can go ahead and get up and leave. I'm joking, I'm joking. Don't. Some of y'all are like, all right, we're going to lunch early. Um, No, seriously, I'll I'll try to recap the story the best I can. But what we have is three chapters that are are filled with a lot of detail, all right? And so I could have made this like three really boring sermons, and so what we do is we just turn it into one hopefully not so boring sermon. And as we look at stories like this, sometimes it's easy to get kind of lost in the details, um, I, how many of you have seen the movie Grumpy Old Men? First one or the sequel? All right, God bless you. Some of y'all need to work on your sanctification. Uh, go go watch Grumpy Old Men. You can get it on VHS, I think. But, um, but it was one of my favorite movies growing up. We watched it all the time and laughed about it. But the Grumpy Old Men would fight, and one of their dads is a character in the movie, and he talked about how... Um, he he loved to eat bacon and he said uh, He said yeah every day of my life they tell me i'm gonna die and but I I woke up in the morning and eat bacon a whole pound of it And then for lunch, I eat a bacon sandwich and then I usually drink my dinner, and then before bed, another platter of bacon, and, and his son says, well, what's the point of that, Dad? And he says, what's the moral of the story? And he says, oh, there ain't no moral, I just like that story. And I quote that all the time. It's my favorite movie quote. there ain't no moral, I just like that story. I tell my kids that when they're like, why are you telling us this, Dad? I just like that story. And so if we're we're not careful, sometimes we'll look at things in the Bible like this long story in 42, 43, and 44, and we'll say, oh, there ain't no moral. God just likes that story. And we just kind of like skim through it in our Bible reading and, you know we we don't pay much attention to it, but I promise you, when you dive into the details of this, it's it's number one. I think something supernatural happens when the Spirit works through us in our Bible reading. And so, if you didn't read this, please take time this week to read it. Uh, three chapters, not going to take you too long, but but I want you to actually get the details of this story because it is important. But I'm gonna I'm gonna try to summarize it for the sake of time. As we look at it, and and show you uh, really really what what I think are some good spiritual applications that are that should be healthy for your soul to take home from you from this story. Okay, so I actually have four of those, but I'm not going to give them to you yet because I want to summarize the story first. Now, Joseph is is who we're talking about in this final section of Genesis, and Joseph had. Um, he had 11 brothers. He was the favorite kid. He was given a coat of many colors by his dad, Jacob, and, and all of his brothers were extremely jealous of him. Now, when you're jealous of your brother, you should maybe just pick on him a little bit or bully him, but instead his brothers were like, how about we just sell him into slavery? It's kind of an extreme reaction, but that's what they did. So they sell him into slavery. Um, he's transported by uh, slave traders to Egypt. Um, it just so happens he gets sold into uh, uh, the house of Potiphar, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And uh, so there he serves. God orchestrates a, a series of events. He ends up getting tempted by Potiphar's wife. She's trying to sleep with him. He gets wrongfully accused and thrown into prison for a lot of years. We don't know exactly how long, but probably four or five years he's in prison. He interprets dreams that that land him in, in Pharaoh's presence, uh, to interpret a dream of Pharaoh given to Pharaoh by God and and God uses this dream to show Egypt and, and orchestrate the nations that there's going to be a great famine on the earth. Seven years of of bounty happen, and Egypt stores up grain. Joseph is put in charge of this. The Bible instructs and tells us that he was second in command in all of Egypt. Then comes seven years of famine, which is where we pick up the story today. And when the famine comes, the only thing left for the nations surrounding Egypt to do is to go to Egypt, because Egypt becomes the only nation that has food because of God's providence and Joseph's wisdom. So we'll pick up in 42 uh, verse 1. Uh, and I'll, I'll go through kind of a summary of the story with you in these chapters. So verse 1 begins, When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm be might happen to him. First of all, I love, that how, I love how cranky old Jacob is. Jacob's at the end of his life here. He's an old man. He could fit well in the grumpy old men movies. And in and, and verse one, he says, why are you looking at one another? He's just so aggravated with his sons. Um, they're getting on his nerves. They're starving to death. And he's like, why are you just staring at each other? Go down to Egypt. They have food. Go buy us uh, some things to take care of our family. But he holds Benjamin back He's really protective of his youngest son, Benjamin, and let me, let me remind you why. Rachel was, was his, his true love. Th- this is the woman that he wanted to be with, that, that he wanted from the beginning. He ended up, by deceit, marrying her sister, Leah, um, but Rachel was the one that he always wanted. Now, Jacob ends up having four wives, but, but Rachel was, was his true love, and from Rachel, he had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Benjamin. Now, he believes Joseph is dead. He has believed the lie that his brothers told, and so he is extremely protective of Benjamin. Also, Rachel had died in childbirth, and so he's doing everything he can to to spare Benjamin. So the other 10 go to Egypt to save the family. They go on this trip, they take money, they're going to buy food and bring it back up. Let's pick up in verse 6 in 42. It says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was The one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? he said. They said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. That's an important detail to the story. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said, You are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now what's happening here is Joseph is remembering the dreams that God had given him when he was a teenager. Remember he dreamed that the, the stars and, and the, the bundles of wheat bowed down to him. And so he had these dreams given to him from God, and he told his siblings that they would bow down to him. Obviously that made them angry, but here he realizes the dream that he had dreamed um, that God had given him was finally, after decades, coming true, that they, his brothers did come to him and they're bowing down to him in submission and reverence. And I want you to just take note of this, that if God says it, it will come to pass. The promises of the Bible are promises you can count on. Even if they seem too good to be true, even if they seem unbelievable, the promises of God are promises that you can count on. And I'm sure Joseph thought, you know what? I don't. No, nothing really ever happened with those dreams. That never really came to pass. Maybe I was wrong on that one, or maybe that was the midnight Taco Bell I ate the night before. But the, but what happened was exactly what God said would happen. It took a long time, but it happened. And so Joseph here realizes that they are here because of God's providence, and he begins to test them. He tests them. Um, in, in a series of ways, and that really is the, the substance of these three chapters, is Joseph testing his brothers. Verse 15, he says, by this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Now, I look at this and I say, why, why would Joseph feel the need to test them? What's the purpose? My, my gut reaction is Revenge. Is he, is he going to make them go back home and then come back to Egypt and do all this traveling just so he can play out some revenge on them? Well, although we might be tempted to think that, I don't think that's the case. Um, his dealings are seen as righteous in Scripture. So I don't think there's any malicious intent. He's very forgiving when they finally do understand his identity. Um, and also, we need to realize he could have just killed them. I mean, the power that he had, he could have put an end to them right then and there. Um, maybe he just wanted to teach them a lesson or or make them earn it. But, but also I don't feel like he he's doing that because he doesn't make them do any sort of labor. He could make them slaves, but he, they actually, um, at one point in a, in a a point of vulnerability, volunteer to become slaves and he refuses to put them into servitude. But I think his motivations are different. Number one, I think he wants to be reunited with his youngest brother, Benjamin. I think he misses his brother. There's a longing for family, and he wants his brother with him. But I think more than that, he's seeing if his brother's hearts have changed. He's giving them a chance to prove that they have learned from their mistakes and that they have actually uh, repented of their sin. And this is uh, something that God does for us. A lot of us are uncomfortable with the idea that that the spirit of God would test us, but the Bible makes it clear that he does bring testing to us. Uh, We we see a whole book of the Bible that's centered around this theme in Job's story. And so uh, Joseph here, again, is a a foreshadowing and a type of Christ to show us how Jesus actually interacts with us. And so there are tests to, to see what the motivations and desires of our hearts are that are in our lives. And so I think Joseph has given them a chance to, um, as, as Lloyd and Harry would say, totally redeem yourself. Okay, So he's going to test them in this way. Now, so what Joseph does, he doesn't want them to go home and never come back. So he imprisons one of them. He holds back Simeon as collateral, while the other nine go home with an abundance of food. He gives them food. He doesn't even let them pay for it. He returns and refunds the money that they brought to buy the food, and he sends it all back to take care of his family, many of whom nieces and nephews that he's never met. And so they go back, but he holds Simeon back to make sure that they return to Egypt. Um, And he tells them to bring Benjamin back the next time they return. Now, Reuben tries to convince Jacob to let Benjamin return when they need to go back. Eventually, the food runs out. They've got to make another trip to Israel. Simeon's just in a slammer, they presume. And so they want to go save him. And so Reuben tries to convince Jacob, hey, let us take Benjamin. They're not going to give us food unless we bring Benjamin. Joseph said he was testing us. And here, they, uh, Jacob's putting his feet in the ground. In 42.38, Jacob responds, my son, talking about Benjamin, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. He is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. And so Jacob's just at the end of his life. He's got gray hairs and, and he says, it, it would be the end of me if, I were, if anything were to happen to Benjamin. Um, Judah steps in and actually um, helps make this happen. He con- confronts Jacob. He, he swears and makes a vow to his father that he will take care of Benjamin. 43, 8, Judas said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And finally, in 43, 14, Jacob says, may God Almighty, grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And so they don't know that this is Joseph. Again, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead. And they just find themselves between the rock and a hard place. They're going to starve to death if they don't go back to Egypt and get more food. And so Jacob here, verse 14 is a really sad verse. You see the hopelessness that he has. Um, he, he does not want to let Benjamin go. He's refused it as long as he can. But the sad reality is Jacob realizes he can't protect his children forever. And this is true for you too, isn't it? Those of you who have kids, it's a, it's a terrifying reality that we face that, that we can't keep our kids safe forever. We do everything we can to teach them while they're young, to raise them in the faith and root them in the gospel. But ultimately, um, they will be in God's hands. Whether we like that or not, God's providence is where they walk. And so these sons of Jacob take off again to Egypt. They return to Egypt to get food, and also their brother Simeon, and they have Benjamin with them this time. They don't know what to expect. They're very fearful. As you read the details of the story, they're terrified of what may happen. They take twice as much money to try to buy favor. And where they may be expecting to go to prison when they get there, Or at at a minimum, just spend time in the Egyptian marketplace to buy food. Instead, they're welcomed into Joseph's immaculate home. They're welcomed into the prince's home for a feast when they expect anything but that. And Joseph is is not prepared at all. He he gives them a feast as a blessing to them. But he's not prepared to let all 11 of them go home. He's gotten to see Benjamin, um, his brother that he longed to see. He still doesn't reveal his identity. They have a feast in their home together. But but Joseph's not about to let all 11 of them go home and potentially never see them again. And so he has another test, and he he takes a a silver cup, which was a very important chalice. Um, The cup would have been a symbolic thing in those days. Um, Think little John's chalice in those videos he made, right? Um, Just an elaborate cup. And he's going he's gonna to basically uh, put him to the test by putting it in Benjamin's backpack. Chapter 44, verse 1 says, He commanded the steward of the house, Fill them in sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. So, they, they essentially frame Benjamin to create this test. The Egyptian authorities catch up with the brothers as they're heading home with all of their food and everything. Uh, maybe a mile or so down the road, they catch up with them. And of course, the princess chalice is unknowingly in Benjamin's backpack. The authorities explain that the, the chalice is missing. It's, it's been stolen. And they think that one of these brothers has stolen it. Well, of course, they vehemently deny that. They, they weren't guilty of stealing it. They, they're so confident that they don't have the cup that they pledge their own lives as slaves if it's found in their possession. 44.8 says, Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, this is the authority, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. And so toward the end of chapter 44, you see this this climactic um, confrontation destined to take place. Benjamin, it, it appears, is guilty of stealing this high-ranking official's chalice, and it appears that, that he is at the mercy of the Egyptian government, potentially even death, and at, at a minimum, slavery. And, and so the question is, how will these brothers deal with that? Uh, will, will anyone stand up for Benjamin, particularly Judah, who made a vow to his father to bring him home? And I want to spend the rest of the time I have, after we've kind of reviewed that story, highlighting these four spiritual truths that I see in this chapter. Number one, we see the providential circumstances of God. I've said this over and over as we've gone throughout Genesis. Every sermon, I want you to see God's sovereignty. These providential circumstances are things that are in God's control. Secondly, I want you to see provision in covenant. That, that even though we sin, we are provided for by a good and holy God when we trust in him. Thirdly, I'll show you persistent conviction that that when we sin, we have a God that loves us enough to discipline and chastise us in our sin and bring guilt to our souls. And thirdly, we'll see whispers of the Messiah and premonitions of Christ that that this story leads us to look to the cross, not just a story. Let's look at providential circumstances. Excuse me. Over and over again. Again, I've I've, I've emphasized God's sovereignty. Uh, and, And so... Young people, listen to me. Youth are are meeting after church. And so uh, when I use some of these words, I need you to understand what I mean. When I say sovereignty, I mean supreme power and authority. What that means is no one tells God what to do. God does what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. That's what we mean when we say God's sovereignty. And so providential circumstances means that God is working out his plan through the characters that we see in these three chapters. And God will have his his plan come to fruition regardless of what they do. I mean, look at all the the quote-unquote coincidences that happened. It just so happened that Joseph was sold at the time he was sold. It just so happened that he was in Potiphar's house. It just so happened that he had in prison the right prisoners around him. It just so happened that he becomes second in command in Egypt. All of these things will lead to God's providential plan to birth a nation that leads to 70 Jewish people, the, the sons of Abraham, coming to Egypt to then become a numerous nation to be led back into the land of promise. You see the reactions of Joseph and his brothers in this narrative as they sort of figure out God's had this planned all along. In 43:30 we see Joseph's emotions when he is is when he meets Benjamin again for the first time in decades. It says then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. Here and other times in these chapters Joseph is overcome with emotion as he watches everything unfold he begins to know and be assured of the fact that this is no coincidence. He begins to be confident that God's plan has perfectly come into existence. In the next chapter that I'll preach next week, chapter 45, verse 8, says it, Joseph speaks to his brothers after he's revealed his identity. And he says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so Joseph's thinking changes over time. It, 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 It evolves as he begins to understand more and more and more that God has a plan for his life. The brothers also are amazed at the care that's given to him and the grace that is given to them, particularly when they expect to be thrown in prison, but instead they're brought into a feast of food. 43.33 says they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. They're sitting at the prince's table given all this free food, kind of like this glorious, all-you-can-eat Egyptian buffet. Doesn't it sound good? And they're looking at each other and saying, how in the world do we get this? All of them are carried about by the hands of God within these providential circumstances, as we are as well. Our lives are carried about by the invisible hand of God. I want you to think of Joseph's story and how many times in his life up to this point that he could have looked around his circumstances and said, why and how did I end up here? How did this happen to me? I was my dad's favorite. I had a coat of many collars. I was in line to achieve the best inheritance, the best job, all the favor, and now look at me. I'm naked and thrown into a pit. How did this happen? How did I get here? Or when he's in prison, wrongfully convicted of something he didn't do, and rats are eating his food, and he's sitting there looking around. How did I end up here? I was doing so well in Potiphar's house. I was in charge of everything. I was excelling at my job. How did I end up here? He would have, in those moments, never said, God put me here. It it, it hadn't registered with him yet. He didn't understand that God was bringing about something even better. Until the end, though. Until the end. And at the end, he's able to change his thinking and see, okay, the pit, the prison, the palace, all of those things were orchestrated by God to save people's lives and to bring glory to my Creator. The reality is God didn't approve of the beatings. God didn't approve of the slavery. God didn't approve of the sin that the brothers carried out or that Potiphar's wife carried out. God didn't approve of the deceit. God didn't approve of any of that. It was all unjust, but God allowed all of it for a greater good. And and, and as you look at your own life, I promise you there are unjust things that have happened to you. There are horrible things that you've had to grieve. There are tragedies all throughout your life. And you don't have to be happy with it. But you have to wrestle with the fact that God has allowed those things. Let me just give you the freedom this morning. You don't have to like that he's allowed those things. You don't have to be happy that he's allowed those things. Here's all I need you to know. Is that God will work everything for the ultimate good. The Bible promises that. And if you're at a place where you can't see it because you're in the pit, that's the hope that you hold on to. In chapter 50, when Joseph looks back on his life, he can see the beauty of God's providential plan when he speaks to his brothers in fifty twenty, And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, God is carrying us where he wants us to be. And that's not always where we want to be. In Ukraine, they have these buses that go through the city that are powered by electricity. They have these, it's like giant bumper cars. They like go up and they hook onto the power lines over the city. It's called the Marshutka. And I I love getting on those things because it's an adventure. There's always weird people on it. And I never know what's happening because I can't read the road signs, Right. I don't know how the thing works, you know, to get, I don't know when to stop the bus to get off or anything like that. I'm just along for the ride. It's, it's a carefree life. I'm just like, wherever we end up, hopefully not Russia, but wherever we end up, we're going to be there, you know? And, and I, you know, when I ride that thing, I'm just like a happy, clueless dog. You ever see dogs, there's not a, there's not a thought behind their eyes. You know, they just going with the flow that, you know, there, there is a grace in that. And When I'm riding that bus and I don't know where it's going to stop, what I'm doing is I'm trusting someone else. I'm trusting someone that knows more than me. I'm trusting someone that speaks Ukrainian. I'm trusting someone that's taking me where I want to go. And this is how it is with God's sovereignty. You don't need all the details. You don't need to be able to read all the signs. You don't have to have it all figured out. You're trusting someone that knows more than you. You see, God's sovereignty will rarely take you where you want to be. There are a lot of preachers that will sell you this lie. That God's plan for you is what you want for you. It's very rarely that. God's sovereignty won't take you where you want to be. God's sovereignty will take you where you need to be. And, and if you're a Christian, that should be your desire. Your prayer should be, God, don't give me what I want, give me what I need. That's a dangerous prayer, but it is what we are called to as believers. And so we trust God's providential circumstances. Secondly, what we learn from this story is provision in covenant. That we see that, that the, the children of the covenant, Jacob's sons, are provided for graciously by God. They don't deserve to live. The things that they've done, the things that they've lied about, that selling their brother into slavery, all of these things just, just damn them. They deserve nothing but God's wrath. But yet God continues to take care of them. The provision by Joseph in Egypt for the family of Jacob and Israel is meant to show us God's sovereign provision for us when, when we trust Him, when we're in covenant with Him, even when we sin and don't deserve it. We're provided for by God. I promise you, you have been blessed. I promise you, if you look, you might not look this week or this month or this year, and you might say, I'm having a rough time. But I promise you, if you look in your life, you have been given more than you deserve. 42.25, Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give him provisions for the journey. This was done for them. There, there's just an abundance of grace. They take money expecting to buy grain. They get the grain. They get the money back. And then they give more treasure and provisions to them. It's an incredible amount of grace. It, it's actually an amount of grace that terrifies the brothers. When they get back home, they're like, we're going to die. We, like, we have the Egyptians' money, we have their food. They're surely coming for us. It reminds me of remember when we were in lockdown and the government started sending us checks? You remember that? That was a wild time, wasn't it? Y'all forgot about it till just now. You're like, those were the days. And I remember getting that money, it just like hit my bank account, and I got a lot of kids, it was a high dollar amount. And I was like, should we spend this? Like, is this right? Like if, I'm talking to Amanda, I'm like, if we spend this, like, are there like secret IRS agents undercover at Best Buy? Like, are they, are they like, is that stimulus money you're using there? Like, it just made me nervous, right? And this had to be how the brothers felt. They go back home, they got all this money given to them by the Egyptians, and they're like, should we, what should we do with this? Like, we're all the way back home here. Jacob actually speaks to him, and he says, hey, the Egyptian accountants made a mistake. There's a, there's a, there's a mistake here. There's an oversight, is what Jacob says. And so he thinks that they're going to be in big trouble. But in reality, what's happening is they're just being sovereignly provided for by God. Graciously provided for. When they go back the second time, after they had received this free food and their money back, they go back and they take twice as much money, just in case they're like in trouble, you know, or the IRS shows up, the Egyptian IRS. Um, and when they go to Joseph's house, they get really worried and they try to settle their account. Look at 43:18. Let me read a little bit longer section here. 43:18 through 23. It says, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. They said, it is because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us, fall upon us, make us servants, and seize our donkeys. Like, there's a lot of bad stuff that's happened. We're going to be slaves. They're going to beat us. They're going to take our donkeys. Our pets' heads are falling off, right? So they... Verse 19, so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and they spoke to him at the door of the house and they said, oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Look at what he replies. The accountant, the steward of the house, treasurer, if you will. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Notice what the steward tells them. First of all, he he clears up the misunderstanding. He says, you didn't neglect to pay. I've received your money. Your account is not overdue. You paid in full. You did nothing wrong. But he also attributes the blessing to their God. This is a man who is probably not a worshiper of the true God, the true and living God. He's probably a polytheistic pagan. And he attributes the blessing to their God. Now, as we look at this, we're like, wait a minute, though. God didn't put the money there. Joseph did. Joseph was looking out for him. Joseph is not God, but he works for him. You are not God, but you work for him. At least you're supposed to be. And and, and what this teaches us is that all the blessings that we receive from God, the ability to work and have a job, the blessing of any financial gain that we have or possessions, all of that doesn't make us just wealthy recipients. It makes us stewards of the living God. Therefore, it's not an obligation. It is a privilege that you get to be a steward. And so in God's kingdom, you're two things. You are both a recipient and a conduit. You don't just sit and receive from the king. You get to do the work of the king. You get to bless others on behalf of the king. This is the grace that you are called into, that you have plenty to to live on for yourself and to be blessed in yourself, and you get to help others. And so at our church, listen, we don't, we don't pass a plate a whole lot. We don't shake you down for your money. Like, if you're not a member of this church, you just keep your money. I, don't, I could care less. But those of us who have said, this is our family, this is our covenant family, we're going to sacrifice the money that's been graciously given to us by God's providential circumstance in our life. And guess what? You get to a place you can't pay your bills, the church is going to pay them for you. It just happens. That's what we do as family because we're recipients and we're conduits. The third thing we learn from this is persistent conviction. What I love, love, love about this story is that the brothers don't get off the hook. They can never get far enough past their sin to get over it. This will preach. This is let the Spirit preach to you all. <laughs> Whoo. So many times we think, all right, I've I've done great wrong in my life. I've sinned in a lot of ways and I'm just not going to talk about it for a long time and eventually everybody and me and Jesus will get over it. It's not how it works. They thought there's no way we'll ever see Joseph again. That's the end of that dreamer. We'll never have to deal with this again. But the present and persistent conviction exists in their souls throughout all three of these chapters. And it shows that God's not done with them. He, is, he loves them too much to, to let them continue in their denial of what they had done. After Joseph had thrown them in the slammer for three days, they acknowledge it. And, and, he sp- and they have a conversation actually in front of Joseph. which It's a really compelling visual if you think about it. They don't know Joseph as Joseph, he's speaking Egyptian, they're speaking Hebrew, and they begin to fight with one another, and they don't realize Joseph can understand what they're saying. 42.21 says, they said to one another, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. The guilt of selling their brother into slavery lives on their consciences because God makes sure that it does. The conviction of his spirit is there. Listen, godly discipline is not for the reprobate, it's for sons and daughters. The Bible makes it clear that godly discipline and conviction and guilt, you don't, you don't eternally and, and, and perpetually live in the shame of your sin, but if you go and try to ignore it, God will convict you of it. He'll make it miserable for you until you make it right. And so even if you've confessed your sin, if you've become a Christian, listen, you need to live free from that sin, You need to walk in holiness. You need to confess it. You need to move forward from it. You need to right the wrongs of people you've offended. Reuben is still trying to make up for it in this narrative. He's the one who tried to save Joseph, but then covers up the lie as well. He speaks up and he says there's going to be a reckoning for his blood. He's saying God is punishing us. This guilt comes up again from the mouth of Judah. Later in chapter 44, after the cup is found in Benjamin's backpack. I want you to think about this. Judah knows they didn't take the cup. Judah knows they didn't do anything wrong. Judah knows they didn't steal anything. But yet, in 44, 16, and 17, Judah essentially confesses to guilt. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Why would Judas say they're guilty when they're not? He knows they didn't take the cup. Why would he admit to it? Well, he clearly views the entire predicament as a judgment from God. He has given up trying to clear his own name. He has given up trying to make himself look good. Listen, your guilt of your sin might be hidden from everyone else, but it is not hidden from God. Forget about what people think about you. Stop trying to make yourself look better than you actually are. Live in genuineness and honesty with a faith community and own up to the fact that you are a messed up person, a jacked up sinner, saved by grace, who needs grace each and every day that you live. Judah was forced to return to the one he had sinned against in order to be saved, in order to have his next meal. He had to return to the very one he had sinned against. This is all of our stories. We have to come to Jesus whom we have sinned sharply against and acknowledge our guilt before him before we're ever saved by him. We have to be willing to acknowledge the fact that we deserve nothing but hell before we can get heaven. And this begins the premonitions of Christ, this foreshadowing of the Messiah, this teaching of Jesus that exists in the Old Testament before Jesus becomes a man. Again, Joseph is a type of Christ As as the nations come to him, it reminds us of the nations coming to Jesus. His story points us to the coming Messiah in the Jewish nation, Jesus Christ, and the Savior of all nations. All nations come to him. He puts his brothers in a pit for three days. Just as Christ raises on the third day, Joseph releases them on the third day. In 42, 17, he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live For I fear God. The word live is a salvific term that he speaks to his brothers. He is telling them how to obtain salvation. Salvation, another Bible word, just means deliverance from destruction. If you want deliverance from destruction. For uh, Judah and the other brothers, they were facing destruction through starvation and the famine they were in. And he says, if you want to be delivered from that destruction here, I'll tell you what to do as he releases them on the third day. Jesus raises on the third day and he says, come unto me, all ye who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He will save our souls. This is how we are to be saved. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, a doctrine we call substitutionary atonement. Atonement means to be at peace with God. It's in the word, at- atonement, at-one-ment. We are at one with our creator. The substitutionary is a word that describes Jesus in our place. The way that we are at peace with God is Jesus took our place. Jesus took our place under the wrath of God, and we took Jesus' place under the blessing of God. There's this reversal that happens on the cross as Jesus was treated like you should be. And you who have repented and trusted in that are treated as Jesus should be. Just as the big brother in the family of Jacob stands up for the little brother, Jesus is our big brother standing up for us, helpless and needing him. Surprisingly, at the end of chapter 44, it's Judah, not Joseph, who's the most prominent picture of Jesus. And it's a beautiful redemption story. Judah is one of the most deplorable characters in these three chapters and the chapters before as well. That that he he's when Joseph was originally sold into slavery, he was the Judah, if you remember, was the one that said, you know what? Let's not just kill him, let's make some money off of this. Judah's the one that that goes on his little trips and buys prostitutes. Judah's the one with all these weird things in his family. Judah's the one just like wrecking his life. And here at the end of chapter 44, Judah's the one that steps up and says, I'll step in place of my brother Benjamin. 32 says. 44.32 says, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Biblical substitution. Judah, uncoincidentally, is the direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. It is through Judah's lineage that Jesus will be born. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And so as Jesus comes as the great substitute, we have a whisper and a foreshadowing of that in Judah as he stands and faces Joseph, his brother, not knowing it's his brother, and big brother says, I'll take Benjamin's place. I'll step in his place and I'll be a slave my whole life as long as you let the boy go. This is what I preach week in and week out. That you need to fall upon the gracious substitution of Jesus Christ in your place. It's what your whole existence is about. That Jesus died in your place, took all of the damnation off of you, and gave all of the spiritual blessings that he rightfully owns onto you blessing you with every spiritual blessing in heaven. And no matter what comes to you, he's promised to take care of you. He's promised to provide for you. He's promised that his sovereign circumstances are good and that his plan for you is redemptive. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.